Last week, uh, we kicked off a new message series um, entitled uh, The Art of Neighboring. And, uh, of course, I wasn't here, and, and I guess I wasn't very, uh, very communicative on w- what I was doing, but I actually went over to Pennsylvania to ensure uh, that my, uh, my daughter was able to walk across the stage and uh, retrieve her engineering degree. Uh, so I'm, I'm so thrilled about that for her. Uh, and naturally... Uh, her mother was thinking, all right, now she's got to get a job. Well, uh, of course, that was my thought too, but uh, God uh, doing things like he does, uh, he has actually uh, been working on that for a while, and uh, she's uh, uh, going to be, she accepted a, an employment offer for a uh, small engineering firm in, in Corning, New York, where they make Corningware, uh, and uh, we, her and I went over there a few weeks ago, and I got a chance to meet uh, her pers- Perspective employer, uh, who is a Christian, his his wife is um, uh, very active in their church. Uh, even does some a little bit of, of preaching in that setting. So I was very uh, encouraged to know that my daughter was going to be in an environment that uh, hopefully would continue to nurture her on so many fronts. Uh, so I, I just praise the Lord for that. Um, her and her brother right now. Um, uh, Christian has an internship in in Europe this summer. He's going to be in Germany. Uh, for a month doing an internship there and then in Amsterdam for another month doing another internship. Uh, and so his sister and he are spending three weeks over there backpacking uh, through Europe. So they're, they're in Paris uh, right now, which makes mo- her, uh, their mother and I very nervous. Uh, but um, uh, they, I, no news is good news, I guess. Uh, and mom's been stalking them on, on her phone, you know, because she can find where they're at. Um, so uh, I, I'm grateful that they have a chance to do that before uh, she joins the ranks of the, of the workforce. Uh, so that, that's been a pretty exciting front on, uh, on our end that I'm, I'm certainly happy to share uh, and, and the reason for my absence. Now in a few weeks I will uh, need to go to Illinois and check up on my mom and make sure she's staying out of trouble, you know, staying out of taverns and, you know, the gambling casinos and things like that. But it's what a, what a caring son does. Uh, so we have, uh, have that coming up and, uh, in, in a few weeks. But for right now, um, we, we, I wanted to focus in on some things that I think have a lot to do with the sermon that we preach to the people around us. And if, you're, if you think about it, if somebody knows that you go to church, they're automatically making assumptions about God if they don't know God very well based on how well we represent uh, uh, God to them. And... Uh, one of the things that um, I, I wanted to hone in on was, um, it, it started out as a, as a sermon on, on Luke 8, but I, I morphed over to Luke 10 uh, as I was going into it, and uh, it has a lot to do with uh, the question, who, who is my neighbor? Uh, and the message title is, Be Open to Interruptions, and, um, and, and you know, as you preach on different things, you find that you do have interruptions. And I, I, I was aware that I would probably be having a couple of funerals this week, uh, but I, I ended up having uh, four of them, uh, which is certainly something that I'm, I'm more than happy to be a minister to those families in those times of need. But, but it definitely is disruptive to your normal rhythm of trying to accomplish things. Um, but that said, 
uh, you know, interruptions happen. And one of the biggest interruptions that happened was, uh, was in the storyline that Jesus had shared with some people who were asking uh, pretty pointed questions about the work that he was doing. And these were religious leaders. And, and if you can imagine... Uh, Jesus gathering with different people in different settings around meals, enjoying the company of, uh, of, of a whole cross-section of society. And how every person, no matter where they came from, in terms of Jesus' attitude, uh, was clearly very important. And where they were at and where they needed to be was an agenda that he had in every conversation. The problem was there were some people... Uh, as Jesus was dining with them, who were the kind of people that like to have a conversation that was going in this direction, and then all of a sudden, out of the blue, uh, a complete sideways question uh, is brought into the equation. And it really was meant to kind of catch Jesus off guard and, and maybe see his true colors. Because uh, sometimes if we're not prepared uh, in the moment, um, we'll just tell what's on our heart. And, and maybe we like what, what comes out of our mouths, maybe we don't. It depends on how true we are to um, the things that we're projecting to people around us. And Jesus, everywhere he went, it seems like somebody was coming up to him and asking a question kind of sideways many times in order to trap him. And if we, and if we look in, the, uh, in, in, this, in, this, uh, in this chapter, beginning with verse, verse 25, um, this is the setting that we discover. Uh, let's just go ahead and open it up. It says, On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. And he said, Teacher, he asked, What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, of course, um, being a brilliant teacher, uh, understood that oftentimes when these things were coming at him, it was, and he was quick enough and true enough to everything that he did, he was able to respond to the question with another question. And this question he's so brilliant in how he responds with questions. This question opened up the intention of the people that were trying to trap him. And so he asked them, well, what is written in the law? But how do you read it? You're the experts. You're the religious leaders who spend all of your time debating these things. And of course, uh, the, um, the lawyer at that time said, well, of course, it's love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus looked at him and he said, you have answered correctly. And then he replied, do this and you'll live. And the interesting thing about this conversation is what we don't see in the text. And it has a lot to do with the things that were churning in the minds of the religious leaders in that day. And there were two religious professionals that people looked up to 
who really set the tone for how we understand the law. Uh, and the law, by the way, is what the Bible, uh, we understand to be the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And what a religious leader would do in that time was take those five books and begin to ask the question, how is it that we can live lives that are in harmony with God? Because the initial question is, what can I do to inherit eternal life? And for us, when we think about eternal life, we're thinking, all right, how can I go to heaven? But I want you to understand something about a Jewish person in the way that they looked at eternity. It, it was really blurred between this life and the life to come. Uh, for a Jewish person, eternal life meant How can I live my life in tune with God in the here and now? I know that sounds odd from our sensibilities because we've been so trained to think about eternal life as something out there. But in a Jewish mind, it wasn't something out there. It was just everything. Eternal life was a quality of life that meant your life was in tune with God's life. And that was just it. I mean, they didn't have this big, big view of, well, when I die, I go to heaven. It was just like, God, I'm living, God is God, and if I'm living here or living uh, in the time where our fathers go to rest, then it's all eternal life. So backing up again to the scripture that we were just looking at, the, 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 the thing that's in the air is a lot of debate about this question regarding the two greatest commandments. And if you can imagine over here, there is a rabbi who says, if you want to live your life in tune with God, and his name was was, uh, Shimei. And And many people looked up to Shimei and they said, he understands the law. He understands the 613 ways to live your life in harmony with God that we've broken it down into. And Shimei's take on this question was, the two things that God really has in mind that are important for us are this. One, we should love the Lord our God with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind. And the Hebrew there is basically all of our muchness. Everything about us. The last atom in our being is to be directed towards uh, dedication to God. And the second one in Shimei's interpretation was, and you should be holy as the Lord your God is holy. End of story. And there was another rabbi And his name was Hillel. And Hillel, his view was basically this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And there were many people who gravitated towards him. As a matter of fact, when Jesus taught seven times in the scripture, he aligned himself with Hillel. One time he aligned himself with Shimei. Okay, you got all that? All right. I hope you do, because it has bearing on how we understand this story. A lot of us, when we think of what we're getting ready to hear, 
the story about the Good Samaritan, we've got some ideas in our head about helping somebody, doing a good turn, um, taking, taking a moment whenever a person's car is broken on the side of the road and, and helping them along. Um, but really, if you could just take that whole idea of the Good Samaritan and just put it aside and track with me a little bit regarding what's going on here at this table where Jesus is trying to be pinned down while at the same time he's trying to expose the intent of the people around him. And as the attorney was asking the question because he knew there was a debate and Jesus responded, do this and you will live. Attorneys being attorney, they're never satisfied. So he wanted to ask another question. Well then, who is my neighbor? And that really is what we, what we, need, to, what we need to discover. And Jesus wanted to explain this, not in a way that just gave an answer, but in a way that exposed their intentions and helped them to see, actually, their own misguided thinking while at the same time not being able to deny where the story ends. So in, in reply, Jesus said, there was a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. And they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. So, for right now, just imagine Jerusalem being at an elevation of 2,400 feet. And Jericho being 17 miles away at an elevation of, of um, 600 feet below sea level. And the only way that you can get to this, uh, this destination was to travel sort of a winding road down the hill all the way to Jericho. And the problem was the, the road was perhaps the most notorious route in, in, in the known world for robbers, for all kinds of thievery, for murders. And when a person traveled down this road, it was much quicker, much, much quicker than the several days journey going the other way. And so oftentimes people would, would tempt it. Well, the Bible tells us that a guy was going down this road. We have no idea who he was. We don't know where he came from. All we know is he was a guy. He was beaten and he was left for dead. And... Honestly, the only way you could really know who, they, who this fellow was was by the clothing that he wore would depict, in a lot of ways, where he came from, what people he belonged to. But the scripture says that all that was pretty much destroyed. And because he was so beaten, he couldn't verbalize, and so you couldn't determine by his accent who he was. So we, we don't know who he is. We just know he is a guy. And I think Jesus did that on purpose. Because in the mind of Many Jewish people at that time, there was a question about the definition of the word neighbor. And neighbor in the Jewish mind, literally the Hebrew word is riah, which means essentially the one who, who lives close by or the one who is close by. Well, if you're a lawyer and you're asking the question, who is my neighbor? Well, if it's the one who lives close by, it probably means one of us. Somebody who is 
from our basic nationality or maybe from our tribe, uh, but in, in some fashion, somebody who we can identify with as sharing the same culture and the same, the, the same language, the same background. And so it gravitated in that direction. Person says, who is my neighbor? Well, you know, it's the people that I live by. You know, it's part of our clan, our larger group. And with that understanding, Jesus describes this story as, um, as it unfolds with an encounter that occurs between the guy that's laying dead on the road. And this isn't a three-lane highway. This is a narrow road. Okay, and a priest happens to be going down the same road, and when he sees the man, he passes by on the other side, which means the guy is laying here, and the priest has to kind of walk around him like that and keep going. So it's not like he's at a distance. He's, he's right there. But here's the thing about the priest. The priest was probably serving his two-week stint in the temple. A priest's job was to go, and just like we read in the story of uh, the birth of uh, Jesus and John the Baptist, there is a time when you've got to go and do your duty. So the priest goes, he attends to the responsibility, he's coming back down the hill, he is ceremonially pure and clean, and enjoying being holy as God is holy. And he doesn't want to disrupt that because that in his mind is the second greatest commandment. And he's, in his purity, he's doing everything that he possibly can to avoid this man because he could be one of them, he could be somebody else. He doesn't know the nationality. All he knows is if this guy is hurting and he is not their neighbor, then he's probably unclean which means chances are any interaction with this person is going to simply ruin all of the holiness that he was able to um, uh, take part in in that temple experience. And the last thing that he wanted to do was to go to his community and have to say, well, I was pure when I started, but now I'm unclean, which would require him to go back up the road to Jerusalem and to be in a place of dedication that says, I need to purify myself. Which could essentially mean socially, people would say, well, weren't you just here? Aren't you holy? And now you've went and messed it all up? What kind of a person are you? And so there was a lot of social stigma associated with this encounter. And he honestly didn't want to be any part of it. So he just kept on trucking. And everybody in the room knew what was going on. Well, then there's another person who also probably spent their two weeks up at the temple. And these were the Levites, part of that priestly class. But their job uh, in this case wasn't to do the priestly work, but it was really to manage the temple complex. To keep everybody in the right place. To keep the riffraff out. And to make sure that everything administratively was handled properly. And so the priest is, is sort of, or the Levite is sort of the, he's kind of the servant to the priest in that, in that capacity. And 
He's also going down. And, and the thing about this road that you need to understand as well is because it's so dangerous, people kind of go in shifts. Like they'll know who's gone in front of them and they'll know who's coming up behind them. And the Levite's coming down. He sees the man and he says to himself, I don't, this person's obviously hurting, but I'm not sure what to do. If the priest who has already uh, passed him uh, has, 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 has encountered him and made a decision, then the only thing that I can do is do what the priest did. Because if I sit down and I try to help this guy out, and the priest finds out that I did that and I didn't do what he did, well, there's going to be repercussions for that. It'd be like working for a boss. Have you ever worked for a boss that you couldn't talk to, you couldn't dialogue with? It was, it was basically, you did it their way or no other way. And if you didn't do that it their way, there were repercussions. So basically, you just had to say, yes, boss, yes, yes, whatever you want. Uh, that's what we do. And that's essentially how he felt. That I, I don't want to make my boss look bad. So I'm going to cave in to the pressure. And just do what he did. And the thing about this encounter. That is starting to make everyone at the table a little anxious. Is they're seeing where this is going. And they're not really liking what Jesus said because Jesus is pulling up some things. Some things that have a lot to do with the religious structure. How we carry on. I heard a story about a, a, a ninth grader who was starting his first day of high school. And he went into his closet in the morning and he looked for something to wear. And the only thing he could find was a pink shirt. And he put it on and he went to school and after he got there and he began to walk down the hall, almost immediately, a guy walked up to him, started making fun of his pink shirt, calling him out, and then uh, essentially just threw him on the ground and kicked him and told him never wear a pink shirt to this high school ever again. There were a couple of uh, upperclassmen that were juniors, and they came and they saw the kid and they said, what happened? And he told them. And they said, well, listen, here's what you do. Tomorrow, wear this pink shirt back to school. And he's like, I don't think I want to do that. And they said, no, no, we got your back. Wear the pink shirt, trust us. So, uh, next day, he wore the pink shirt to school. But he didn't realize that those two uh, juniors had social media and texted and basically communicated uh, every way possible to the rest of the student body in the high school where a school of 1,400 people had 13 and 1,320 people the next day wear pink shirts. And it was a declaration to the bully and to anybody who was going to carry on like that that they were not in the majority. And that the structure of bullying in that way was being overruled by a new structure of compassion. And it 
essentially that's what Jesus is doing here. He's taking a religious structure that is so convoluted in the way that it's been constructed, and he's tearing it down. And this is what he does. Because we read about another person here that, well, this is, this is cringeworthy. Because when you ask the question, who's my neighbor, it is certainly not that guy. Uh, there is a there is an extra biblical uh, writing about Samaritans, which means calls them uh, the sons of Sheol. Uh, it vilifies them as just those ungodly half breeds. They're subhuman, and Jesus pulls this one up and says, "But a Samaritan, as he traveled." He came to the, where the man was, and he saw him, and he took pity on him. Now notice I've highlighted the word pity in yellow. You know why? Because the word pity in Greek is splonkna. Aren't you glad we don't have that word in our vocabulary? Splonkna. Can you guys say that? Splonkna. You know what that means? It means literally bowels of compassion. And you may think, well, I don't, I don't know what that means. Well, it means that it just flows out of you. Now, this is graphic, but I, it, this makes a point. All right. When I was in high school, one of the star upperclassmen one time decided that he would drink a half a gallon of milk before the basketball game. And I don't know if you know much about our capacity to digest dairy products, but there are limits. And I can only tell you that he exceeded his limit. And when he got out on the basketball court, it was obvious that he exceeded his limit. If you can only imagine him running and things coming out of his body uncontrollably, that would be an example of splunkna. All right? It just happens. And as dramatic as that is, Jesus said... This guy could not help himself. And so he went, he went to him, and he bandaged his wounds, and he, he basically spent enough time with him to ensure that his well-being and the road to recovery was well on the way. Let's just put up the next verse if we can. And it tells us the next day he took out two denarii and he gave them to the innkeeper, purchasing his health and his care. And he said, look after him, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Now what is veiled here is something that I I don't think we always capture. Because what the thieves did is they... They caught him, they robbed him, they beat him, and they left him for dead, and then they left. And what the Samaritan did was, saw him, had compassion on him, touched him, picked him up, carried him, and brought him to a place 
where he could be made whole again. And then said, after all of that happened, I will pay for everything that he needs to make this healing happen so that he can be a human being again. And then he said, and then wait for my return. Now who else do you know who does that on a cosmic scale but Jesus? It's just a picture and a pattern of everything that embodies what he did while he was here on earth. How he showed the art of neighboring. And how he looked at something that was an inconvenience or a disruption or an interruption to the religious leaders who were so focused on everything else except the most important thing. And he completely undid by showing the absurdity of not putting people first. And so Jesus said, which of the three men do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And they really had no choice but to say, the one who had mercy on him. Isn't that interesting? This is brilliant, isn't it? Because if he had opened up the conversation looking for them to feed back to him, what would, a, what would, what would, you, what would you think of a Samaritan who helped another person? They would just shrug and say, don't care. But when you frame it that way as human beings helping another human being that we don't know if he was a Samaritan, we don't know if he was a, 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 you know, a, a true Israelite or anything in between, Jesus said, go and do likewise. Essentially, this parable isn't just about helping out a person who's in a, a, a state of, of maybe despair or helping out a person whose car is broken down. It goes much deeper than that. It really asks the question to these guys, how do you love your enemies? How do you love your enemies? Where is your heart at when it comes to those people that are different? And those people could be right next door to us. They could be far away. They could be that person that, um, well, honestly, they're close, but they're hard to love. And here's what I would suggest as I end this. I would suggest that you should name your enemy. And your enemy could be even a family member. It could be somebody that you are having a dispute with. It could be a, a boss at work who is just piling on all the time. It could be someone even in the church. And it could be maybe some people aren't even coming to church because they, they said, the church did this to me. Let me just assure you, the church doesn't do things to people. People do things to people, and the church has people who sometimes do things to other people that are not beneficial, as we understand from our story. So you name, name, name your enemy. Name that person. But here's the second thing you should do. You should pray for the people who have wronged you. And this is not an easy thing for us to do, because if we're wronged, we're offended, 
And we want to take that and use that offense as a means or a basis for discounting that person. But Jesus has told us elsewhere, we should pray for those. And it's interesting how when you pray for somebody that's gotten under your skin that way, your attitude changes towards them. You become less defensive and actually more interested and more compassionate. And here's the third thing you should do. And that is, you should engage in the disruption. If you look at those two religious leaders, they're like, this is a disruption, and it's getting in the way of my holiness, and therefore, I I honestly, I, I need to just go around it. But God may be putting disruptions in your world, and maybe with people that you're having disruptions with, so that you can learn to love them, influence them, pray for them. But I, I would say in a lot of ways, um, it's just a way for God to maybe get at something that he needs to heal in your own life. Here's the fourth one. And that is seek to understand. Now, there's a couple of ways you can look at this. If you look at the Samaritan, lay, or the, the, the gentleman laying on the ground who has no identity whatsoever, that's one thing. But if you look at the people that are responding to him in different ways, that's another. And sometimes we vilify people because we don't understand them. And maybe, maybe if we had a conversation that was asking questions that would lead to understanding, perhaps things would come out. Maybe the kid that threw the underclassman down on the ground in the pink shirt. Perhaps he was a bully, but maybe he came out of an environment that bullying was the order of the day. And you see another layer there. And as believers, our job is always redemptive. And God is using the disruptions in your life and mine, the interruptions in your life and mine, to do his work. I would probably venture to say, as much as we try to do things intentionally in life, and to bring order, and to have purpose, and, and, to, and, to, and to, you know, to, to, to just have the discipline and do the right thing, oftentimes the Lord does his best work in the disruptions. So if God is throwing a disruption your way, an inconvenience your way, something your way that you're saying, I don't have time for this. God may be saying, no, we're making time for this. Because we have to work some things out, both in them and in you. And here's the last thing you can do. Repeat the process. Now, I I wonder, I I wonder, you know, in my case, I, I have to say I've been the priest. I've been the Levite. I've walked around situations, skirted around situations, and not, not constructively handled them in a way that I'm proud of. But as I read this story, I find conviction in knowing that if God's put that situation in front of you, he wants to help you develop the ability to respond in the best way possible. So chances are, he's going to repeat the process for you and I. Our neighbors are there to love as we love God, but our neighbors are also there for us to grow and for them 
to find the influence of God through our lives in the disruptions that are created. So as I conclude this message, I'll just ask the question for each of you to ask yourselves, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor?